The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Scissoring isn't a thing in day 365 million of the quarantine. I'm, I'm Darren Karp. She's Liz Cully. And we're just so <laughs> excited to be here. But more importantly, we're excited to have our guests because, listen, I like Sam J, but now no, knowing that Sam J has a cat that's fucking with her shit, I'm all about this. I'm all about this life. Welcome to Scissoring isn't a thing. She just grabbed it. Grabbed a paw full of my weed. She just went on my weed trail. That's Damn. Outside of feline fun, we're honored to have you on Scissoring Isn't a Thing. You're hilarious in the comedic community, and we're so excited to talk to you about everything. Where are you zooming in from right now? Are you LA based? Long, no, New York. New York. Long Island City. Is like oh, Queens. no, I'm from New York. I live in Manhattan, so I know I know it well. That's very nice. Long Island City is, like, pretty dope. Now, did you grow up, were you born and raised in, in New York, or where were you born and raised? I'm from Boston. Oh, you're a mass hole. Oh, no. This is... Yes. Get off the Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Your cat really wants to be in, in the this, interview. Is, is, was Sam Jay a cold... Email from Liz Cully. No. How did this? How did? How do you guys know each other? Because I, I know I'm meeting you. Well, for we the don't first know time. each other well, but we met before. We met at the gayest yeah. place in America, the Abbey in West Hollywood. Abbey. Sam. After. Yeah. Show, yeah. Think, you right? performed. Yep. You were hella funny. It was like Scout Dorwood, mm-hmm. right? Paige Hurwitz, who's an OG. Yeah. If you guys don't know, she's kind of like. One of those, like, if you think about it from the lesbian mafia, she's like a she's, John. Yeah, I was going to say, she's she's the mob boss, right? She's the mob boss. Um, and a good friend. So that's how we met. And then you were on your way to kick off, like, an international tour. We all kind of chatted afterward. You were hysterical. I followed you on Instagram, and I DM'd you cold, which is kind of how I roll, Sam. Like, that's how I have no shame. I'm like, what up? Please come on our show. Um, but I actually so thought done. for some reason you had lived in L.A. Yeah, I moved there first and then I moved to New York for a job. I was very bummed because when Darren and I were recording some episodes before quarantine, I hadn't hit you up because I was like, oh, she's in L.A. Remember, I was like, hey, we're in L.A. this week. Can you record? You're like, nah, I don't live in L.A. anymore. And I was very sad. But we are so grateful that you're here on Zoom with the lovely Zoom delay of audio. (laughs) Well, here's how we kick off every podcast, Sam. We usually ask our guests uh, how they identify. We get all types of answers. Tall, uh, lesbian, Queer, nothing, fluid. Yeah. Um, so how would you identify? Is that an okay question to ask? And if so, why not? Uh, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I just identify as Sam. I feel like it depends on the thing that's happening. Okay. I don't have like a solid like identity. Like I am a lesbian woman. Like I'm just kind of Sam. But if I need to be a lesbian woman for the moment, I am that. If I need to be a black woman for the moment, I am that, you know. Cause I do still deal with all those levels of uh, discrimination. Yep. But when I just think about myself, not in reference to the world or how the world views me, I'm just saying. I, I mean, I love that. And do, do you mind me asking how old you are? I'm 38, I think. And so, yes. how old were <laughs> yeah. you when you came out? If that's maybe the right term, or maybe you were always out or discovered it. Walk us through, like maybe that early sexuality years, if you don't mind. I would say I was about 24 when I started dating women. I don't know if it was really a coming out because I I never felt closeted. I never felt like 
I just didn't see being a lesbian as an option. Okay. Okay. It wasn't even on my board of things that was my life until it just was my life. In a was weird it way. because did you not know any gay people or have them in your family or was it something that was discussed that wasn't like tolerated or appropriate? No, it wasn't discussed because it wasn't an option. It was it didn't even come up. It was never like a conversation like if you ever were a women well, woman, we would disown. It just was like you dated boys because that's what you dated and everybody was dating boys and I'm attracted to men, so it didn't feel mm-hmm. wrong or weird for me to be dating boys. You know what I mean? Like None of that seemed off and it just was what everyone was doing around me. And I didn't particularly feel different than everybody else. It wasn't like a resistance thing or me doing something I didn't want to do. It just was kind of like I was dating dudes. And then I had a boyfriend for a long time from probably when I was about 15 till I was about 22. That's hella long. Yeah, a long time. So he was really like my best friend. And, and my mom died when I was 16 and he was kind of with me through that. And um, we were really just like really close friends and I loved him. So, of course, like uh, the sex and everything that we were having, I felt connected to because I felt connected to him. And then when we broke up and I was just kind of like out in the world, I was dating other guys and I just was like, not I didn't get anything out of it. And I didn't particularly like sex. And I was like, I don't know. Was it like, am I one of those people that has to be in a relationship with someone like like the right. se- like, you know, just going through sure. phases of like what could be going on. And then at the same time, I must've just been giving out like hella dyke energy. Cause like I'm in Atlanta and all these women are like oh. hitting on me and stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is weird, but I'm not also completely turned off by this. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like that type of an evolution that brought me to my core. Well, and then when that was happening, I mean, in your twenties, you know, obviously you're a full blown adult. It's a lot different happening maybe when you're 22 than when you're 12. Right. Because you know, you've had sex before. So you knew what that was like and you knew sexual urges, but when all these, you know, the dykey vibes that you might may or may not have given off, was it uncomfortable for you to get a lot of these women hitting on you? And you were just kind of like, Oh, this feels more right than maybe I thought. Yeah. At first it was like a little uncomfortable, but I think I always was kind of like, this feels more right than maybe I thought that I mm-hmm. thought it would. But I had to like warm up to the idea of it because it it was something I was I didn't even consider. So it was kind of like, okay, like whoa, this could be right. It. Yeah, this could just be a thing that makes you not feel so out of place. And then once I stepped into my queer identity, I realized like, oh, you were just like the whole time when you were just being like a straight, you were awkward as all fucking get out. Because <laughs> you it, it, it didn't suit you at right. all, you know, now that I'm suited. But it was just the suit I always had, so I didn't know it was ill-fitting. And when you said at first, you know, like it, what, like being a lesbian wasn't even like an option. Like when you, were ha- when you had that first boyfriend from 15 to 22, 23, did you ever think about women or do, like, was it, was it even a thought? Did you not even know you were attracted? And given that when you said it wasn't even an option, is that really just a, is that just Sam? Is that growing up in Boston? Is that being a black woman? Like what, wh- is it just a specific you mm-hmm. issue? Like culturally, is there any difference there? I mean, I think like visibility is everything for sure. And I didn't, I didn't see a lot of black lesbians and, what I understood of lesbians, it was a very white woman thing. You know, like I grew up in the nineties and it was like Lilith Fair. And I was like, Ellen, I'm not that. Right. Yeah. That's Me not, neither, Sam. But just for the record, like, not all white <laughs> lesbians are down with Lilith Fair, but yes. Yeah. 
that's not, I didn't see any of myself right. in any of that. And then like the white lesbians that were in Boston were just, you know, all those like New Hampshire yeah. Maine lesbians that just drive Subarus and like have that kind of annoying lady look. <laughs> so there wasn't like a lot of like, you know, there was one black dyke and she was a crackhead. So it just okay. didn't seem, it was just not on my radar of shit to do. Like that's not a life move this way. And it, but it wasn't, it really wasn't like shut down a part of yourself. It really just was like, that's not right. like me. I look back now and I go, oh, you were totally attracted to this right. girl, this girl, this girl, this girl, this girl, and this girl. But it was such not, I just looked at them all as like my really sure. good friends. I just didn't <laughs> have any like scope of that until that switch was flipped. What were you doing in Atlanta? Like, how did you get from Boston to Atlanta? Were you in school there? Were you seeing friends? Were you already? Yeah, I used to be down there. So, I mean, I, I don't, I had a wish I connections to Atlanta. My my family's from the South. My grandma's from Augusta. I was born okay. in Atlanta, but I left when I was a baby. I left when I was real young. So I didn't, I don't remember growing up there or anything. I grew up in Boston. I'm from Boston, but my brother lived down there. I had a cousin down there. So I used to go when I was younger in the summers to like, stay at my brother's for a month or something like that. So it kind of was always like, I knew I wanted to go there when I could finally go do, get out and be on my own. Did you go to any, cause there is like, I mean, I can't remember the name of the club, but I went to a gay club in Atlanta, which was like, I was the only white girl literally in that spot. So it was great to yeah. see kind of this like gay black culture from an outsider's perspective. Did, were you in that? Can you describe what the scene is down there? There's nothing like it. I don't, I've never experienced a gay scene that's that black. Yeah. And that like hip anywhere else but Atlanta. Like, I, I feel like super fortunate that that's kind of where I came out because there's just such a, a presence of gay black people there. And like, there's tons of women, they're super hot. Like, they're always at the clubs and like all everybody goes to gay clubs. It's it's just Atlanta's just a black hodgepodge yeah. of everything. It's just a good black Mecca for all black shit. And do you find <laughs> that is. no, now that you live in New York, I know you didn't grow up necessarily in New York, but do you find that like to me it's kind of surprising for that for the big scene to be in Atlanta? You'd think it might be in LA or New York, maybe even Chicago. But why like why Atlanta? Why is there why not New York, which seems to have been Atlanta's like Black Hollywood, dude. Like that. About to say, yeah, no, Atlanta it makes is, all the sense uh, that it's in Atlanta, don't you think? Yeah, oh, yeah. it's just Atlanta is where is where it would be. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a black mecca. Like, all black people from everywhere go there, and like, you hear about it before you've ever been. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody knows about Atlanta, and then especially back when the clubs used to stay open late. You know, the rules are a little looser. Right, it's a little freer in that type of way when it comes to partying and drinking and shit like that. It's a college town. It's like black Boston. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's a black college city. You know what I mean? People go there to go to school. So just like all that energy in, in one place well, kind of creates that Yeah, vibe. You talk about visibility. How was it to be in that scene and see so many I mean, people it was, out? It was interesting because Atlanta was a full journey for me. You know, like when I got there, I was still dating dudes. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I had friends that literally watched me transition, you know what I'm saying? And then, so I had learned like the music scene of Atlanta and like the straight club scene of Atlanta. And I was known there and then like to transition into my queer identity. And then it was like learning the whole gay side of Atlanta and then meeting all those friends. So 
Atlanta was like a whole like transformative time in my life, period. And the scene kind of was just like a backdrop to the journey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, do you think that if you had been introduced to that scene earlier in your life, you would have come yeah, out sure. or known maybe a little bit more sooner? Like, sure. I think I would have known because I think it would have been a more like feasible thing. Right. You'd you know have seen the like, example of it sort of like, oh, it's possible. When I think back, like when I would go to Atlanta in the summer to visit, I remember I was like 14 and my brother had a, a, a stud friend. And that was the first time I had seen a lesbian. I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, cause she was fly. Like she had a little Caesar. She had a part. She had Tim's. <laughs> she had a jersey on. I was like, oh, that's kind of dope. Yep. You know what I mean? Like I remember being intrigued. I didn't know what that was, but I was intrigued by that. You can never take away the first time you see a real fly stud. It it it's in yeah. your it, it stays with you. <laughs> that's for damn like, sure. Okay. That's like a different version of this that I have not seen that I didn't know existed. You're like, I thought it was just white ladies with puka shell necklaces and Subarus, but now I see what's up. Or like a black crackhead who's like rejected by society. I just never seen black fly stud with an ill whip just dating bad bitches. Like that never came across my screen before. Do you find that like that there is a big difference between the white I'll just use a kind of general term, queer, white queer culture and black queer culture. And if so, what is the biggest difference? And maybe what's the biggest misconception of black queer culture that people really need to start understanding? The biggest difference is techno music. (laughs) That's it. Techno music. And house, y'all like a lot of techno and house. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm dead. White people love house. I don't though. I'm like, I'm over here. I mean, I'm a little bit different. We do. I I like house music. You do? I didn't Mm. dance to it, I guess. I'm not really. Yeah. And like a lot of like, we can't just like listen to Rihanna, Quiet Place. We have to listen to like the house version. (laughs) The Zed like DJ remix of Rihanna. Right. We don't do that. We don't do that in the black clubs. We just play the songs, the black songs the way they are. Uh, That's <laughs> hilarious. Yes, you have better music. Okay, to be fair, you have better music. Okay. No, I don't know. I think it's just like, I don't know. I think it's the same differences that lie in, in, in the differences between black and white culture, period. I don't think they're any specifically different in gay culture. Interesting. Okay. Do you like, did you find that maybe? Maybe because you, you know, your examples of lesbians, you know, growing up might have been these like, to your point, like white basic women, you know, that you didn't necessarily identify with. Did you find it harder to come out because you were black? No, I don't. I don't really like I went through a phase of coming out. I just started like dating chicks and then I would just bring girls around and I cut my hair and then I just started dressing different. I mean, my mom had passed away when I was 16. I my dad had passed away when I was a kid, you know, so I wasn't really like being monitored by anybody and I didn't really feel particularly responsible to anyone but myself at that point you know what I'm saying so it wasn't like a, I gotta tell them it was just kind of like I'm gonna just live like this and whoever fucks with it fuck with it whoever don't don't yeah I love and that. I also knew like my family wasn't gonna not I don't and I don't know how I knew that because we never had the conversation but just it's a type of family I have I knew they weren't gonna be like you can't be a part of this family like right. I just don't have that type of family when did you start performing, writing. Yeah, when like, did you know what, you were funny? Yeah, well, 
clearly you're funny, but when did you start kind of making like it know that you were? Yeah. yeah. Or when when did comedy become a part of your life? Like eight years ago now. Okay. Maybe? So so a little bit later. Like, yeah, I was 29. I was about to turn 30. I was just like feeling like life was about to pass me by if I didn't kind of like make some decisions about what I wanted and, and who I was going to be. And I had always wanted to do stand up. It was always like something that I loved. And I had tried it when I was about 22. And uh, I like did a couple of mics and I didn't I didn't do great. But then I got sick. I got diagnosed with lupus and I got really sick. And I was like in and out the hospital for like a year. So it's about I was 21. And then when I got well, I just went down to Atlanta. And um, when I was down there, I just didn't pick it back up. I just started doing other stuff. I was fucking with music and just doing other shit, kind of trying to find my creative lane. And for whatever reason, I think, you know, just kind of loving comedy and finally getting into it and then getting sick like that. I think it just kind of knocked the wind out of my cells when it came to comedy a little bit. And I I don't know. I just, whatever reason, when I went down there, I didn't just like jump right back into it. I kind of like was being a little lost in the sauce for a while. And then I got sick again because I didn't have insurance and I was just down there living, being a young person. And um, I got sick again and I was like, ah, man, I'm too sick to be down here. I kind of need to go home. And I was going through some distant shit with my family anyway after my mother died. And it was just kind of like time to go home and reconcile some shit and just deal with some stuff that I was kind of running from as far as them and our relationships and shit like that. And then also when I got home, I just was like, yo, like it was kind of awesome. You know, what's it going to hurt to try? I've tried a bunch of other shit and given my energy to shit I didn't even want to do jobs I hated, you know, so what if I just double that energy and put it into something I really want to do and just like see what happens. Yeah. How hard is the comedy scene in general, but also being a woman and also being maybe a black woman? Like, is that a separate level of difficulty? Because a lot of my friends are comedians and, you know, it's not a very like feminist culture from what I know. Maybe I'm wrong. What's been your experience? Well, I don't know. I feel like I have like back and forth with that. I feel like it's like it's as chauvinist as the world is. Okay. Yeah. But I also feel like it's like comedy. So you can always call someone out. You know, like if I'm at a comedy club, we're hanging out after and somebody says something I think is fucking ridiculous. I'm just like, yeah, I think what you're saying is fucking ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're going to say something back and we'll have our little debate and move on. I don't think anybody is like, particularly trying to stop me from having anything or do anything because I'm black, a woman, or at least not in comedy in that community. Now we're talking the industry and like that, that's a whole nother thing. But if we're just talking like the community of comedy and comedy clubs, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like people are trying to stop me from doing shit. I do feel like, yeah, I'm sure plenty of times I walked into clubs and they was like, mm, black lesbian, I already know what this is about until right, I open right. my mouth. That's the same way when I walk into stores and the same way, you know, like it's not different to me than the world. How was it though, like in Dublin? Sorry, Go for it. No, please. but like, how was it touring internationally? Like for you, did people, did you change the comedy? Did you keep your roots? Like, what was that interaction like for you? And do you change your, to your surrounding or maybe you like yeah, do, do you different materials? Room, right. Like, how does that work? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. It's like, I'm going to do the jokes I want to do. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, at some point, it's my show and you came to see what I do. So I'm going to do what I want to do. But also, like, you fill the room. I don't know if you change the jokes for the room, but you definitely set the tone of the environment that you're in. Yeah. 
you know, the longer you're at a place, the more you're going to be acclimated, the more you had experiences in that place. So you're going to throw some of those experiences into your set because you've just been there. You know what I mean? And like, you do want to vibe with the people that are in front of you, you know, yeah. for sure. What's your opinion as a comedian on like cancel culture with comedians? Like, is there something if it's if you're funny, does it really matter what you say? Right. If it's a good joke, is it a good joke or is there a line that comedians really need to draw and say, like, nah, man, you can't um, make fun of me, too. You can't make fun of dikey culture or whatever it is. Like, what's the line? Nah. I don't think there is one and I don't believe in cancel culture, period. I just I believe in like you shouldn't support the things you don't like. Right. OK. Right. You don't need to you don't need to fire them. You just don't have to give them your money. Or, yeah. yeah like, right. If you don't like it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to support it with your money. You don't have to support it with your with your time. And you right. can tell your friend, hey, I don't support this. And this is why. And maybe you shouldn't support it either. I do think it's very wild to call for anybody's career uh, yeah. i know now, i agree it's just like how how dare you you know what i yeah. mean is if there's a place that like that's i i just i don't get that like with the louis shit it was kind of like okay so what do you expect him to never do stand up again right because you're not in control of that you don't have a right to do that mm-hmm. like if if he wants you can't say well he can't do stand up you don't have to watch it right but just don't go he, right yeah, but you can't stop, like, someone from expressing themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of how I feel about Chick-fil-A. When Chick-fil-A came out against gay marriage and, you know, donated a lot of their money or whatever, when that became known, I was like, I'm not trying to, like, cancel Chick-fil-A. I just don't have to give them my own hard-earned money and support the causes that they— And also, some people believe that, and they have right. the right— you believe that yeah even though you don't like what they believe and they have a right to take their money and support Whoever. the things they believe in yeah yeah that's yeah. the country that we live in you know what i mean you can't tell people they can't take their hard-earned money and support the causes they believe in amen even if it's fucking kkk unless they support them going to commit a crime or you can directly say this correlates to this that hurts people and you can make that clear lineage you can't do that because once you take that right away from one person, you take it away from everyone. Yeah. yeah. And what was your thoughts on the Kevin Hart situation in sort of being ousted from hosting the Oscars for saying something? I think it was homophobic maybe yeah, a it few was hom- years he, ago. Nah, I wasn't, he tweeted something like and an apology like, years ago that was homophobic. Right. What, do it, you, what yeah. did you think about that? I mean, I, I understood both sides of it. I, I understood him in the sense that he did already apologize for it and he already had said that it was an ignorant statement. He He's shown through his actions how he's grown from that statement. And so to some degree, I get it. Like these people that are sitting behind a computer shouldn't be in charge of people's jobs. I you agree. know, it's like you feel like if you keep giving to the mob, the mob will keep feeding off You're of giving you. Giving them power. You know? so, right. So at some point I get it. It's like, no, like either you're going to hire me for this because I'm a good person for the job and my resume has shown that I am. And you've seen where I've made this mistake. Right. Or you're just not going to do it. But I'm not going to keep putting myself on display for a, a mob. Yeah. But I also get that people who didn't hear his first apology or maybe weren't aware of it could have been well served that weren't the mob by just hearing him say it again. Yeah. Have you ever said a joke in your, let's say, let's just, you know, give a decade of, of you doing comedy full time, maybe that you wouldn't say today that maybe you would have said eight years ago or anything you look back on and you're like, oh, shit, I got to scrub that for my routine or I feel bad or anything like that? 
I don't I don't feel bad about any joke, but it's definitely just I don't tell anymore just because I don't think that anymore. Yeah. Well, you've evolved, right? Like right. we all don't. And the world has. The world has. Yeah. Yeah. I just grew as a person, and that's not my opinion or my opinion about it at the time was limited. And now my my scope has grown. I've seen more, so I, I have a wider understanding of something. And so my approach to that topic may come from a whole different angle because I just grew. Yeah. Right. What was your? I don't regret anything because I've never said anything out of like malice or to be mean. Yeah. And I think to your point, it's like it's what you think at the time. If you have a good moral compass or who, if you believe in who you are, it's kind of like, sure, I might not have those opinions or those thoughts anymore, but yeah. at least they're not like crazy and offensive. Um, I'd love to know. If, I mean, that yeah. even might be to somebody. Yeah, but that's fair. I, I know I'm not coming from a place of hate. Yeah, exactly. so I'm, not, right. I'm not regretful. I may think differently now, but I'm not, I'm not regretful. Of anything. So you started focusing your energy on comedy 2029. What was kind of your big professional break? Like, what was the first thing where you were like, damn, I can You're like, oh, shit. Yeah, I'm, this is full time for me now. When I felt comfortable, when I could like breathe. Yeah. And be like, okay, I could do this and make money and uh, not be like scared. It's probably after JFL, probably like three, four years ago. Yeah. JFL was a big uh, turning point. Will you describe for the fans what JFL is? Just for Life is this giant comedy festival that they have in Canada and Montreal where the entire industry goes down to Montreal for like a month and just consumes all the comedy that they can consume. And then they do this thing called New Faces, which is like, these are the new people that are going to matter in comedy. And all these agents and motherfuckers come and they watch you do stand up. And if you do well, then you're kind of like on everybody's little radar. And so that's nerve wracking. It is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so when you did that, what kind of came out of it? Like, did you get representation? Did you meet? Did you start Aria to collab? OK. Already had agents and stuff like that. Okay. And I had already done my social half hour and all that stuff. But I don't think I felt. Like, well, okay, this is going to work for real until that moment. Because it was a milestone for me that I had up on the board of like, okay, I want to get this thing, but I also want to just do very well at this thing. So hitting that benchmark for me and and kind of surpassing some of my expectations let me feel like I could like breathe. It was like, all right, now you're in the league. Before you were just like maybe going to get drafted. But now you're like, you're in. Is there anything in your comedy routine or when you're writing new jokes or what, however your process is that you won't touch that you're like, I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to talk about climate change or something like, is there anything you don't think like you're just like, nah, fuck that. That's not me. I just don't talk about things if I don't have nothing to say about it. And I don't talk about things that I'm not ready to talk about. Like there's like stuff uh, with my mom and stuff that I just don't think I processed yet. So I don't do a lot of jokes about my mom. I have one on this, my new Netflix special. And that's like my first real joke joke that I've ever done like in a space like that about my mom. But uh, I I just know there's probably so many layers of shit I haven't really processed yet that yeah, right. it doesn't feel like a natural joke to me yet has come out of it, except for that one. So it's just like, if it doesn't happen, it just doesn't happen. But I don't like, there's nothing I'm afraid to talk about, but if I, I just don't have something to say about everything. Right. Talk to us about the Netflix special. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Like, that's like, I feel like in today's world, that's like the, the Super Bowl. Yeah, Super come on. Bowl. That's fucking huge. I mean, you Which must congrats, have felt great. By the way. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you. 
yeah, I'm, I taped it already. I taped it on February 22nd in Atlanta. Right before uh, fucking right the before quarantine. COVID. Yeah, yes. exactly. Damn, that's I, lucky. You know what's so funny is like, I love hearing shit like that where I'm, we were in a, right when I talked about when we had contacted you originally, like we did hella episodes in person right before the shit went down. And I was like, fuck yeah. You almost feel relieved. You're like, I got, I slid, yeah. I slid right in before the, everything closed down. Okay. So you yeah. did it in Atlanta, which I, I love. With a full blown audience, I'm assuming, right? Like everyone was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was like, this was before everything shut down. So it was like the last thing. Well, actually, <laughs> before I was I'm in the house. I'm curious as to the state of comedy, right? Because right now we don't know when we're all going to be back in theaters for any given point in time, right? So your set that you did with the Netflix special, right? You did it in front of a full-blown audience, hundreds of people, thousands of people. Let's say you give the same set on Zoom without an audience. How much of your set is really affected? I mean, how much of it, how much of a routine is really the audience? I wouldn't do that. Because you think it would ruin the integrity of your set or you're just not interested in doing something that's not in front of an audience? What's your... Uh, that's just not how stand-up works. Yeah, I it's feel you. It's an art. Right. It's an art and you need this it's energy. Yeah. It's like, if I'm just in my living room, then I don't know, that just feels like jerking yourself off. That's weird. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about some of the opening monologues on these late night shows now where I'm like, I don't know, it's not funny because no one's laughing. Like, sometimes I'll laugh because, you know, well, Liz is laughing. Yeah. As much as it's like, you can't feed off the room at all. So it's like, I feel like a comic on stage with no audience, you're doing comedy in the dark. You know yeah. what I'm saying? One of your senses is cut off, basically. It's like, right. bro, I need to fill them to give them back the proper energy. I, mean, I just don't know how that works. Not that a- I'm equating what we do with what you do, but I have to be really honest. Like we're pushing through, we're doing these interviews because we're just like, we got to keep doing them. But it is so difficult to not be sitting in a room with you. I have to. Be, and by the way, you're incredible. And I actually think this is going really well. But the fucking like lag and like not having the buzz in the room and not being able to like pick up your actual vibe, which is totally right. tangible mm-hmm. and intangible all at the same time is super fucking difficult. That's so my it's interesting. Rolling that thing right yeah, now. That's I, what I like to yeah. see Sam J. God damn. Darren is a Sam huge, with her J. That's Darren, what it Darren is. Darren is a huge stoner. I like I used to be I used to fucking smoke an eighth a day. How that's humanly fucking possible. Oh, unclear. It's, it's easy to do. I, was, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, but I'm, now yeah. I'm on some like lesbian in a Subaru mom weed shit. I have a question for you just overarching. You know, you're, you're 37, you're 38, full blown adult. You got your shit together. You got Netflix specials. You're hilarious. You got a following. What's something that Sam knows at 37, 38 that you wish you knew at 17 or 18? That there really are no rules that you really can do whatever you want to do. In anything, not in anything specific, just in life. Like you could say what you want to say. You can be who you want to be. There's no lane you have to follow. Is that really what you mean? Yeah, like all the rules are made up. They're not real. They're constructs, right? Yeah. And it's more about like your energy, your work ethic, and the choices you make. Your choices are your total power and you are in total control of that. You determine the type of person you're going to be, you determine how you're going to be the people and you determine where your life is going to go. And I think if I could have really believed that, I think I felt it at 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, but I didn't believe it until I was about 28, 29. Yeah. It's a good lesson. 
That is a, a really good, good lesson. lesson. Well, I mean, yeah. that might be like the perfect way to end this interview, even though I <laughs> could sit and talk to you forever. And I wish that things would hurry up so I can see you live. Yeah, that's right. Soon. Um, also, I wish I was sitting with you smoking, smoking weed. Yeah. Um, I love that I continue to stalk you on the Internet. It was a couple years I, ago, actually. Right. When did you? I went to Dublin like three years ago. Was no, that was not three years ago, was it? Yo, time fucking flies. I was on my first season of SNL, and this is my third season of SNL. And yeah, it was about three years ago or two. Because you've been you've been writing on SNL for a few years, right? Yeah, three. This is my third season. Next season will be my fourth. How do you feel that SNL is doing via Zoom? Yeah, like how do you how do you feel like? Obviously, it's not the same as when you know you're in Studio 8H and NBC, but. I think it got better. I think the first show, we was figuring this shit out. Yeah. And I think by the third one, it was in a little groove. I mean, uh, the production definitely went up. I thought I was impressed. I'll say that. Like, I was like, whoa, they made this shit still look like a real show. Yeah, like, yeah I even thought that they, too. And, and like, just how they worked everything out. It was like, it still felt like we get we care. It didn't feel like someone was just throwing on so we have something in the airspace. And I was like, nah, this is still like a production and we're going to give you a, an SNL quality show. And it's okay that you don't have the audience there. I mean, we we had to figure it out. I don't I don't think any of us prefer it that way. No, yeah, right. Of course but not. comedy is not dead just because we got a pandemic going on. Essentially, it's yeah, it's, it's altered. We figured it out, but I I know everybody would like to get back because that's how that's where the payoff is for us. You know what I'm saying? It's like if I'm not in the room and even a sketch artist, if they can't feel that laugh, and I'm not getting paid off as the yeah. artist. Well, because again. Yeah, you yeah. don't know like what's actually resonating. You don't know yeah. what's actually working. And yes, because then you don't know how to move on. You don't know how to rework that joke or not. Or keep, you know right. what I'm saying? That's exactly. Yeah, you're totally and correct. The feeling that you're chasing, like you're doing it for a reason because it, it gives you it, feel, it, it resonates in you and makes you feel something. You don't feel that over Zoom. Yeah, right. I know. I know. Right. I'm again, I'm so sorry. I'm we're so appreciative that you did do this yeah. over Zoom. Saying, like, don't get that, you know, right. over Zoom. What the artist is in it for is like, I wouldn't even be getting what I'm in it for. And then that would make me not care about the jokes. It just the whole thing would come crashing down. Yeah. Well, we're in it. We're in a new normal and hopefully we're going to work it out. But comedy is not dead. And Sam, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Just like in life, just like in sexuality, we'll figure it out. Sam, thank you so much for coming on Scissoring Isn't a Thing. It was honestly an honor to get to talk to you. And we're so excited about your Netflix special. And I'm just going to put this out there. We'll see you in New York or out here. Holler at your girl. Yeah. But also, I'm going to put out into my... I don't have never had a vision board in my life. But if I had one, it would be Atlanta with you in my future. Yeah, yeah. Sam, thank you so much. Maybe we'll see you in Atlanta. Bye. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to Scissoring Isn't a Thing. See you next Tuesday. <laughs>